Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT, and as always, I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Well, hello everyone. I hope that you're doing great. I hope your week's doing really well wherever you are in the world. All the listeners in the 94 now countries and counting that have taken the time to listen to the Paranormal Sun, thank you. Honestly, thank you so much. It's um, It's been really humbling when I see there have been so many people all over the world. I mean, I've said it many times, but I'm big on telling you how I feel and being genuine. And um, yeah, uh, look, folks, I realize sometimes I may quote unquote overshare, but there are very real reasons why I do it. I don't share about my mental health and my ups and downs in needs of a pity party. I've got lots of people in my life who support me, many of them who listen to this program. That's not why I share it. It's not meant as an excuse. It's not meant as a woe is me, feel bad for me. It is meant simply to let you know that it's okay to not be okay. We all have our own struggles in life and everything else. And someone who's 50 or 60 and looks at someone who's 20 and says, oh, why are you crying? This is the kind of BS that my dad used to do, and it's something that I swore I would never do. I can't know what it's like to be a 17-year-old kid in today's world. I can't know what it's like to be a woman. I can't know what it's like to be of another religion or a different sexual persuasion. But the reality is I can show empathy for my fellow man, woman, and whatever non-binary term you may prefer. That's the bottom line at the end of the day. Uh, it's not here to say, feel bad for me, cry for me. But I'm always going to be genuine. And yes, I tone down a lot of things for the program. Because one, I don't want to sit here and turn it into a pity party, okay? Uh, two, you've got your own lives and you've got busy things to do with it. And three, I mean, we've all got our struggles, like I say. But I'll always be genuine with you. That's part of what sets me apart. I'm a, a unique human, as we all are, and look, uh, at the end of the day, if people don't like it, well, I mean, I'm sure there are some people out there who probably heard it and say, oh, I don't want to hear about that. Well, just fast forward. You know, it's not like I go on for half an hour, an hour about it. Just, just fast forward along. I just want you to know, as the listeners, and anyone out there in the world, it's okay to be not okay at different times. And again, I mean, we've all got our ups and downs, we've all got our strengths and weaknesses, and we've all got our unique bumps and bruises that make us us. Yeah, don't get me wrong, I wish that I didn't have uh, asthma, and I wish that I didn't have some of the aches and pains in my life, and I wish that I didn't have some of the mental health issues that I've gone through in my life, but the reality is, I do. And I'm not the type of person who's going to stigmatize and say, oh, it's bad that you're depressing or it's bad that, that you're this or that. It Look, it, at the end of the day, it's just a, another facet to our personalities. I've said it before on the program many times, and I totally, totally meant it. We're all multifaceted, and it's just like someone who can get a bit hot-tempered, okay? Now, again, I, I know the connotation, oh... Uh, hot-tempered and violent and they beat people. That's not what I'm getting at. What I'm saying is there are people sometimes who get hot-tempered, but the double edge of that is passion and real passion for the things that they do. And yeah, I've had a temper at different times in my life, but I've worked really hard at getting it under control. I mean, at the end of the day, to me, if we're all just going to be, if, if I went and took, um, uh, look, 
Again, this might sound non-PC, and I don't mean it to, but I, I don't know what the current medication of the day is, but I remember it used to be lithium for people with bipolar and things like that. And if I'm going to take something like that and it's just going to turn me into a droning robot type person and I have no pleasure and I feel no pain, what's the point of life, okay? So yeah, look, I, I just wanted to clear that up, folks. None of it here is ever meant as a woe is me, feel bad for me. I'm just being genuine. I look at everyone who listens to my voice as part of the Paranormal Sun family. And uh, means a lot to me that you take the time to listen. So I'll be damned if I'm not going to be genuine with you. Now, on a related note, the whole stuff in Ukraine and Russia. Okay, again, this is going to be the last time that I'm going to discuss it. But I just want to put this out here and let you know. Right, so I'm not an apologist for Vladimir Putin. I think Vladimir Putin has done a really horrible thing by invading Ukraine. I, I don't condone it. But neither do I condone the U.S. and NATO getting involved in Syria, for example. And this whole, oh, the U.S. is always right. No, I I'm sorry. It's not true. There is no country on God's green earth, uh, or whatever you believe in, if you don't believe in God, that's fine, that has a mandate to basically do whatever they want to whoever they want. And I'll, I'll never agree with that. It doesn't mean that I don't want to see the people in the U.S. have a great life and succeed. And it doesn't mean that I don't respect the people who've been in the military. Like I say, for goodness sakes, I've got a family full of veterans all the way back to World War I and beyond. But it doesn't mean that I condone invasions and regime changes and some of the BS that certain entities within the U.S. government have gotten involved in over, I mean, at least my life and, and much, much longer, I'm sure. Like I say, I mean, if you go back, you see fingerprints of... Regime changes and that all the way back to at least the uh, Spanish-American War, probably beyond that. So at the end of the day, again, if it's something that just, you know, doesn't resonate with you, hey, that's fine. I'm a human. I'm not going to be everyone's cup of tea on every subject. I'm sure that there are many people out there that if you had a program, it would be the same. I wouldn't agree with you on a lot of things. But it doesn't mean that I don't understand your position, and it doesn't mean I don't respect it. The reality is I just try to not spend all day on it. We don't sit here and bang on about politics endlessly here. But I, I'm sorry. Look, at the end of the day, I don't have any more faith in CNN or Fox News or ABC or CBS or NBC than I do in Al Jazeera, the BBC, Sky News, RT, anything else. Yeah, you can say that RT is funded by the Kremlin and big deal. Look who owns CNN for years. Look who owns Fox. I mean, look, at the end of the day, the people in power, the people with the real money are the ones that win out of war. It's always been that way. It's gone back thousands of years. I've told you. It's been said time and time again. The Romans were really big on it. When all else fails, take them to war. If you've got people starving, give them bread and circuses and give them triumphs and war, okay? That's it at the end of the day. Now, I know some of you might look at it and say, oh, JT, you're living in an ideal world. You don't want war. Well, of course I don't want war. Who does? I'm sorry. I came from a very poor background, and I don't like to see young men and women marching off to die so that rich bastards can get richer. And uh, that is the reality of it. And it happens all over the world, some countries more than others. And again, I don't think that the U.S., Entities that I've discussed are any more 
evil or you know than than others i believe that all of them in that realm have got certain uh morality issues that um most of us wouldn't go past certain lines but look it is what it is i get that most people are going to have a very centralist view of the world depending on where you're from if you're from the uk you're going to look at the world with the uk focus if you're from the us you're going to look at the world as a uk focus china australia kenya wherever okay all right look i fully get that but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be looking at and exposing some of the dark and seedy things that some of these groups do okay and again at the end of the day don't be upset when you see other countries doing things when you know that you do the same type of stuff it's that old saying you know uh, do as i say not as i do my dad was really big on that you know i'll do what i want but you do what i tell you to do well yeah sorry that just doesn't fly with me so that's my diatribe on those two subjects and again folks i just wanted to clear up any misconceptions clear up any air Despite my joking around, no, I'm not, and I never have been funded by a Russian oligarch. In fact, every person who's had any funding to do with the Paranormal Sun, I know personally. And it's a very small group, and it's not been much. And that's fine. Like I say, it's not why I'm here. I'm not here to become George Soros and get rich off of everyone. I mean, if people want to donate, that's great. But what I'm saying is, no, there's no seedy connections with me and any other groups or agencies or anything else. So I hope that's cleared it up for anybody who may have any misconceptions or concerns about it or whatever. Just at the end of the day, folks, realize whatever the mainstream media tells you in whatever country, it's not necessarily the real story. I'm a big proponent on the fact that history is written by the victors, and the victors tend to have a very personalized agenda to make themselves appear as the moral right the one that was correct, the one who was the good guys. Again, I get that at the end of the day, okay? I mean, if Napoleon would have won against the British and Europe would have became basically the European Union long before the current European Union, history would be written in a very different way. If he would have conquered Russia, it would be very written in a very different way. If in World War I, the Germans would have defeated France. History would be written in a very different way. It is how it is. I'm a big believer in the fact that history, real history, only goes back as far as living memory. Anything that happened before that is all sub subjective, depending on who wrote it and when. So, for example, World War I now, I'm sorry, there's no nothing is true as far as history goes. You just have what the history books tell you, and we all know how wrong those things can be. Now, on that note about history being wrong, occulted history, different history, whatever you want to call it, I heard an excellent episode of Forum Borealis. I've had Al from Forum Borealis on as a guest. If you haven't heard that episode, you might want to go back and check it out. And as I say, Al is definitely in that group of people who I look at as a real inspiration for the Paranormal Sun. And Al had an excellent two-part episode from a lady who purports to have the journals of Henry Sinclair and the other and many of the other relatives, his sons and grandsons, etc. That basically shows that the Templars were in the U.S. and North America since at least, I think it was 1097, something like that. 
which is fascinating because we've often postulated on things like this, but I know, where's the proof? Where's the proof? And there is another podcaster out there who I've done a little bit of work with in the past, and he said to me, oh, your, your threshold of truth versus my threshold of truth or belief are two different things, and hey, that's fine. I get it. I fully understand. But at the end of the day, it's fine for you to open your mind and say, well, what if? What if Europeans were in North America before Columbus? And don't give me that BS, oh, oh yeah, well, that's just taking away from the Native Americans. No, it's not. Look, first off, I'm a quarter Native American. So if anybody can talk about this, I can understand that, okay? Number two, Native Americans have said there have been people visiting much longer before Columbus. Again, it comes down to that very, in my opinion, racist belief of archaeologists, not so much now, but I mean over the years, and especially back before the last 50 years, saying that, oh, yeah, well, they're just, it's mumbo-jumbo, and they don't know what they're talking about, and they're wrong. Like I say, for example, you would have a group say, oh, well, if you say that the Egyptians had help from an outside source, be it alien, be it another civilization, whatever, you're racist because you're taking away from their accomplishments. But at the same time, when the Egyptians tell you point blank, this group was here or they helped us or whatever, you say, oh, well, that's that's not right. They don't know what they're talking about. You can't have it both ways. Giants, uh, visitors from, you know, star people, all these type of conversations. As far as I'm concerned, you have to go in and look at them in the same light as you would what did the Native Americans eat. Uh, certain areas, or American Indians. So yeah, uh, I found it fascinating. I've always been really big into that kind of stuff. Alternate narratives of history. What really happened? What may have occurred that we don't know about? What has been uncovered? So if you haven't checked that out, that's a really good one to go and check out. And Al does have them up on YouTube. Now, if you hadn't noticed, I'm feeling much better. And I'm not going to get into depth on this episode again. I know it might sound like a bit of a seesaw, but hey, it's life. It's mentally, we go through our ups and downs. I do. I have for many years. But I found some things lately, some philosophy that's really helped me. And I'm feeling much better. And I hope that you, wherever you are, when you're hearing this, are doing well and are having the best day, week, month that you possibly can. So we aren't going to fluff around too much here in the weeds, folks, and get bogged down and talking about all these things that I mentioned. I just want to cover them over really briefly, and I'd rather cover them over here on the news of the dam, because it's a news segment, versus on a mainline episode. Now, many of you can tell I was really down in hearing about Susie passing away, and I will be getting that second half of our interview out. I would like to get it out in our next program slot. So, meaning the next Wednesday, Thursday, we'll see. I'm going to do my best. I haven't started editing it yet, if I'm being honest. But I wanted to hop on here and give you a News of the Damned episode. And for those of you who have listened and gotten back to me and told me what an enjoyable conversation it was that we had, thank you, because yes, it was. It was a really enjoyable conversation, and I really did enjoy it. I, I mean, it was just one of those things where we just hit it, hit it uh, right off the bat together. Now, I've also contacted Susie's um, team, let's say, to just offer my condolences and also let them know that if 
Susie's husband would like the raw audio or would like to know that this uh, conversation's out there to steer him in that direction and let him know if there's anything that we can do for him here at Tower Studios to please let me know. I can't un I can't uh, know what it's like to have gone through losing his wife. And look, he may find solace in having that conversation. Maybe he will, maybe he won't, but it's there if he would like it. And I would like to think someone would do the same for me if uh, the roles were reversed. So, uh, yeah, I just want to, again, state my condolences to Susie's family and friends Anyone and anyone who may have known her, she was a real shining light and uh, gone too soon. So that's all out of the way, folks. A uh, couple more bits of news because, again, it's a news episode. So I had a question from a loyal listener in Western Australia. More on that uh, shortly. John asked me, he said, hey, you haven't mentioned William in a while. How's William? Folks, William is as good as William can be. Unfortunately, he's not walking. Still happy in his bed. He gets uh, carried around by me. He spends time with me and Vi wherever. So right now, for example, while I'm recording this, he's out in the front room, sitting room, lounge, whatever you may call it, with Vi as she's sitting there watching TV. And uh, then when she goes to bed, he'll go in. And when she gets up early in the morning for her 4 o'clock shift, then I'll go and get William and he'll come and sleep with me. Uh, he had him in the, in my lap the other day as I watched TV, and he always enjoys that. He loves to be close to me. So he's as good as he can be, and I'm bound and determined to give him the best life I can possibly give him. For those of you who listened to that episode, uh, part one with Susie, I mentioned about my cat and dog being poisoned when I was young, and, and folks, trust me, it's one of the most heart-wrenching things I've ever seen, to know that they were poisoned and to know that all you could do is basically end their misery. It's heartbreaking. Uh, it's it's a lot different when it's something that's that close to you. I mean, those pets I grew up with from, I remember getting them both. So it wasn't before I was born, but I mean, they were basically there for my formative years up until I became a, an adult. And to see them suffer because some asshole decides I'm going to I'm going to poison animals. Yeah, it was heartbreaking. And uh, it's a lot different when it's that versus uh, a work quote-unquote work animal so a draft horse or something that's broken a leg or killing meat to put on the table that's different for me anyway at least where i grew up and i get that some people look at that as a uh something that's a bunch of bs how can you say one's okay and not the other but uh poisoning and making anything suffer to me is ridiculous i mean at least if you're going to put a chicken on the table you limit its suffer suffering and you get it over with as quickly as you can and you move on and uh, to poison a pet, to me, there's no more disgusting things you can do. I've said it before. Again, I try not to be too judgmental, but murdering, rape, child molesting, and animal people who uh, have cruelty to animals and make them suffer, uh, I find it very hard to believe that those souls can often be redeemed. Hopefully in another incarnation, in another life. So yeah, folks... Um, Aside from that, I do have one other real bit of positive news here for you. Got a couple chapter presidents that need to be inducted because I haven't done it for a very long time. And these people have been very supportive. In fact, uh, I've got a story from one, a couple of stories in the News of the Damned, and a story for the other one. So, John in Western Australia. 
Welcome to the club of chapter presidents and uh, paranormal field correspondents for the Paranormal Sun. So, John in Western Australia, you're the chapter president from here on for Western Australia. And I've got a little bit of a different spin on the other chapter president, something different. So Mark in San Antonio has been very supportive. Mark is originally from San Diego, and so there are lots of things that we have in common. As far as I know, I lived in San Diego area for about 10 years, and Mark and I have had different conversations about different things. And Mark's done his best to reach out and also be supportive wherever he can. And I do appreciate it because I know you might think, oh, that guy in the mic, he can't have much of a lonely life. But I don't have a lot of a social life right now because I don't have a lot of money. I'm not working. COVID's been running rampant for the last few years. So I don't get out and see a lot of people outside of what I do for the show. So this is our first ever military chapter president. So Mark in San Antonio. You are now the official Air Force attache or representative for the Paranormal Sun and the chapter president for the Air Force. So thank you very much, Mark, A, for your service and what you've done. Mark is a very worldly individual who's been all over the world. In fact, uh, Mark told me that he had been down those dusty roads of the Air Force base, the infamous Bentwaters uh, UFO case in the UK, and he's been many other places. And so, Mark. Yeah, including here in, in my little humble country. So, Mark, congratulations. Thanks for everything you do. Thanks for the support, and keep it up. I do appreciate it. So, aside from that, folks, as far as anything kind of on the works, if you want to know where to find stuff about the Paranormal Sun, if you want to find the social media in that, again, not hard. Go and look in the show notes of any episode, and there's a link at the top that says you can follow and support the show here. Click on that link, and then you can go and Follow on Instagram, Facebook, whatever you want to do. Um, and you can also always send me an email, as Mark, Trey, and many others do, at theparanormalsun at gmail.com. All one word, theparanormalsun at gmail.com. Now, without any further ado, we're now going to get into the news of the damned. Now, for those of you who don't know, there was a gentleman in the early 1900s named Charles Fort. And Charles Fort was a person who was interested in all of the things that we cover here on the Paranormal Sun and that you and I are so interested in. Everything from things in the sky, unexplained lights, UFOs and cryptids, disappearing people, histories, mysteries. And Charles Fort gathered at the time 20, 30, 40,000 index cards of information from periodicals, newspapers, and magazines of his time that highlighted these different cases from all over the world, and then he gathered them into a series of four books. Well, Charles Fort liked to refer to anything that was ignored or excluded by science as damn data. Therefore, here on The Paranormal Sun, this segment is always known as The News, the news of the Damned. So the first article of the News of the Damned we've got here is from Trey, our chapter president in Oregon. So thank you, Trey. 
And uh, yeah, I admit, I fully admit, folks, I'm a bit behind the loop in a lot of the articles I get sent. But hey, uh, thanks, Trey, for sending this through. And I'm going to cover this one now. And uh, this is one of your newer ones. So apologies, I haven't gotten to some of the older articles you've sent me. But this one is from unexplainedmysteries.com. Have a lot of good stuff on that site. Trey sends me stuff from there quite a bit. So this one says Obama Presidential Library has over 26,000 files on UFOs. Not shocked at all. And this is from March 16th. So it says a recent Freedom of Information Act, or FOIA for short, as you would know if you've listened to a few episodes on stuff like this. Request has highlighted just how many files are still held by the U.S. government. Best known for his work providing access to declassified government files through his website, The Black Vault, and that is exactly who I was thinking of as I was reading this, and that's John Greenwald Jr., recently made a request to the Barack Obama Presidential Library for any files or documents that it may have pertaining to the UFO phenomenon. When he received a letter back on March the 10th, he admitted to being floored by the response. According to the letter, the records contain a whopping 3,440 pages and 26,271 electronic files pertaining to UFOs, UAPs, and Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, or ATIP, and the Advanced Aerospace Weapons Systems Application Program. So this is a lot of the stuff that Luis Salazondo and uh, the people who were on that Nimitz case and some of the others have been talking about uh, ATIP and the, uh, what's the other one, Advanced Aerospace Weapons Systems Application Program. The files reportedly include documents, photographs, and videos. If true, I am absolutely floored the Obama Presidential Library has that, wrote Greenwald Jr. There is a catch, however, as he also found out that, for reasons that remain unclear, it would take 16 years to process the request to make all these files available. It took the wind right out of my sails of excitement, he wrote. Whether it will be possible to have the National Archives release a smaller selection of these files in the meantime, however, remains to be seen. And then they've got a tweet here from John Greenwald, and it says, Jackpot. The Obama Presidential Library just informed me they have approximately 3,440 pages and 26,271 electronic files that pertain to my request for this information. Now, just to put it in perspective, off the top of my head, and again, don't shoot me if I'm wrong, but I want to say the CIA files is about 3,000 files. So you're talking about something that's, uh, what, um, eight, nine times bigger in volume, depending on how big those files are. So yeah, interesting, and obviously much more up-to-date. So yeah, that is a freaking um, interesting one, and thanks for that, Trey. And uh, we shall see, because uh, John Greenwald's quite good about getting that stuff out. Let's hope that he does have it out, and if he does, and if I see it, then uh, maybe we'll have a series on that. We've obviously done a lot on the CIA files, and there's still many to go through, uh, so maybe we'll do some more of that in the future. Rightio. So the next one is also from Trey, which uh interesting little one here. And this one says, th uh, sorry, this is from Live Science. And again, folks, as always on the News of the Damned, there's a link in the show notes to each article. You can just go and click on the article name if you want to go and check it out. And it'll take you straight to the link. So this one's from Live Science, and it says, Odd circular shape beneath the ocean in Google Earth images is probably not aliens. By Stephanie Pappas. 
And it just says published eight days ago. So what did that be? The 23rd? Yeah. Something like that. Here's the real science be behind the seafloor UFO. A circular shape on the seafloor visible on Google Earth is raising cries of UFO, but the chances are it's not aliens. And it looks like it's off the coast of Peru. They've got a photo here of this thing, and I hadn't seen it before. The sighting comes courtesy of Scott Waring. Heard of him? He's the one who I think, I want to say, did the infamous supposed UFO crash flying saucer in Brazil, which was, as they said, it was probably a trick of light on Google Maps. Um, okay, so it says, proprietor of UFO sightings daily.com and frequent discoverer of objects that he dubs 100% proof of ancient aliens. He's also an avid pursuer of photographs from NASA's rovers, and he has claimed to find everything from a monkey on Mars to the 24-foot-tall, 7.3-meter-tall body of a Martian monarch killed in battle one million years ago. Yeah, I, okay, now he's ringing a bell. I've covered some of the stuff that has been in the sun and that in the UK from him. Upping the UFO ante, the shape is located off the coast, sort of near Peru's Nazca Lines, a series of enormous geoglyphs built by the Nazca people almost 2,000 years ago. These lines are a common fixation for conspiracy theorists. Yeah, it's all conspiracy. Yeah, if you find anything like this, you must be a conspiracy theorist. Yeah, that, that term gets annoying. Anyway, who sometimes claim aliens were involved in their construction. So what did Waring find? A circle some 4.2 miles or 6.8 kilometers in diameter, visible about 352 miles off the coast of Lima. The circle appears to rise from the seafloor like a hill or mountain. Most likely, though, the ocean floor nubbin is a data artifact. Strange shapes can appear for many reasons on the ocean floor in Google Earth. The company uses data from multiple sources to map out the seafloor. These sources have different resolutions or levels of details, and when they are stitched together, strange shapes sometimes appear. In a 2016 blog post, Google developers pointed out one data quirk that can lead to a strange hill and valley artifact. The background map of the ocean floor is based on a map made by Scripps Institution of Oceanography, which is in San Diego, which uses gravity measurements from satellites to roughly map out the ups and downs of the seafloor, also known as the ocean's uh, bathymetry. For more detailed mapping, the company gets data from ship-based sonar surveys. These sonar, so, sonar surveys sorry folks, send pulses of sound down towards the ocean floor, then record the echoes to get a high-resolution picture. At times, the rough satellite-based measurements and the shipboard measurements don't agree, and a simple point of data from one or the other can lead to what looks like a steep hill or cliff. Notably, the UFO, spotted by Waring, sits right in the middle of a transect line where a shipboard sonar survey has clearly passed, making it possible that the shape is a side effect of stitching together multiple data sources. These long lines are visible all across the ocean floor on Google Earth, and are sometimes mistaken for signs of lost civilizations. Odd ocean floor shapes on Google Earth illustrate just how little is known about the seafloor. The satellite imagery that covers almost the entire ocean floor can resolve features down to about 0.9 miles, or 1.5 kilometers, while modern seafloor sonar, sea sonar can reveal details on the order of 328 feet, or 100 meters. According to the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, only 5% of the ocean floor has been mapped by modern sonar. Yet fully, fully true. They've always said that 
the oceans are less mapped than the surface of the moon, which is quite stunning in one way, but not in another because, hello, it's covered in water. So interesting one. Me personally, I'm always interested by these sorts of things, but I don't get too excited until someone actually turns up and finds something like the stuff off the coast of Japan, like the stuff off the coast of Cuba, like the Baltic Sea anomaly. And there's also this purported, uh, for lack of a better term, UFO base off the Channel Islands in Southern California. Now, I don't think anyone's actually dove on that and gotten any footage or anything yet that I know of. But um, yeah, I'm always more excited when you actually go and find, hey, hey, ship-based sonar at a local level shows that it's not just a um, rel or a blip issue with the program. Right, so again, thank you for those two, Trey. Appreciate it very much, and thanks for keeping in touch with me. And now on to a couple of articles from Mark representing the U.S. Air Force in San Antonio. So thanks for these, Mark. Uh, you may not realize it, but I do see the articles that you often link in your emails. I just, as I said, haven't gotten around to it, but i got a couple here for us tonight. So the first one here, this is a fascinating thing, and I'll tell you why once I read the headline. This is from Live Science. This says, four-story rogue wave that randomly appeared in the Pacific Ocean is the most extreme ever detected. And this is from Harry Baker, and this is from February the 16th. Scientists describe it as once-in-a-lifetime occurrence. Now, the reason why I say this is fascinating is, if you go back to the episode that I did with Lionel, uh, episode 50, where I got to interview a true living legend in this field, Lionel brought up the famous story of the Flannan Island Lighthouse. And I'll just boil it down really briefly, but basically you had three lighthouse keepers go missing, and when the searchers turned up, they found no sign of them. And uh, it was very strange that they all disappeared, and there's reasons when you read into it why they shouldn't have all gone missing at once everything else always one person was meant to stay in the lighthouse etc but that is one of the leading theories for that is a rogue wave so and there have been some fascinating other articles i've read about rogue waves uh, in the meanwhile so it says a, a four-story tall rogue wave that briefly reared up in the pacific ocean off the coast of canada in 2020 now i hadn't heard this one the one that I heard that was massive was in the Atlantic. So this says, was the most extreme version of the freaky phenomena ever yet recorded, scientists now say. Rogue waves, also known as freak or killer waves, are massive waves that appear in the open ocean seemingly from nowhere. This rogue wave was detected on November the 17th, 2020, around 4.3 miles or 7 kilometers off the coast of Yukulet, on Vancouver Island in British Columbia, by an oceanic buoy belonging to Canadian-based research company Marine Labs. Now in a new study published online February 2nd in the Journal of Scientific Reports, uh, scientists have revealed that the Eucolet wave was around 58 feet tall, or 17.6 meters. Now, okay, now I'm sure I've heard of rogue waves being over 100 feet tall, but anyway, we'll carry on with our article making it around three times higher than surrounding waves. Rogue waves this much larger than surrounding swells are once-in-a-millennium occurrence, the researchers said in an statement. Okay, so maybe what they mean is maybe the one that I heard of, maybe it was 100 
feet, but maybe the surrounding waves were, say, 50 feet, if that makes sense. Proportionally, okay, yeah, here we go. The Eucalypt wave is likely the most extreme rogue wave ever recorded. Lead author Johan Gemrich, an oce oceanographer at the University of Victoria in British Columbia, said in a statement, Rogue waves are enormous walls of water that form and dissipate in the open ocean. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association, they are different from tsunamis, which are caused by displaced water from underwater earthquakes, landslides, or volcanic eruptions, and do not become massive until they near the coast. A rogue wave is scientifically defined as being at least twice as high as the surrounding sea state. Yeah, okay, so that's making sense from what I said. The average height of waves for a given area at a given time. Researchers think that rogue waves are formed when smaller waves merge into larger ones, either due to high surface winds or changes in ocean currents caused by storms, according to NOAA. However, the exact mechanisms behind the freakish crest are still something of a mystery, according to the statement. The eucalypt wave formed in a sea state of around 19.5 feet, or 6 meters, making it just under three times as large as neighboring swells, which is the most extreme size difference ever observed. Only a few rogue waves in high sea states have been observed directly, and nothing of this magnitude. The probability of such an event occurring is once in 1,300 years. Well, to your understanding, because, again, I'm not making fun of these guys, but uh, they've been proven wrong so many times, science in general, and I'm sure as we go through time, we're going to find that uh, this is much more common than they think. So it says the first official rogue wave was detected in Norway in 1995 and known as the Dropner Wave. Scientists had previously suspected that rogue waves existed, and stories of sailors being caught out or even killed by freakishly massive waves have long filled maritime folklore. But until that 1995 report, scientists had never observed them. Since then, scientists have studied only a handful of rogue waves, but they estimate that one forms every two days somewhere in the world's oceans, researchers wrote in the paper. The Eucalypt wave is not the largest rogue wave that has ever been discovered. The Dropner wave, for example, measured a much more considerable 84 feet or 25.6 meters high. However, the sea state during the Dropner wave was around 39 feet or 12 meters, making the rogue wave just over twice as tall, not three times as surrounding crests. Rogue waves like the Eucalypt wave normally go completely unnoticed. However, if a ship or oil rig were to be caught in one of these freakishly large crests, the result could be disastrous. Fully agree. The unpredictability of rogue waves and the sheer power of these walls of water can make them incredibly dangerous to marine operations and the public, Scott Beatty, the CEO of Marine Lab, said in the statement. But researchers hope the networks of monitoring buoys, such as the 26 Marine Lab's buoys strategically placed along the North American coastline, could reveal more about these oceanic anomalies. The potential of predicting rogue waves remains an open question. But our data is helping to better understand when, where, and how rogue waves form, and the risks that they pose, Betty said in a statement. Climate change could affect the intensity and frequency of rogue waves, according to past research. A study published in the journal Science Advances in June 2020 revealed that extreme wave conditions have already increased, but between 5 and, sorry, by between 5 and 15 percent due to stronger winds and currents caused by raising ocean temperatures. Yet another reason, folks, not to go out on a round-the-world solo yacht endeavor. Yet, I would say that over history, throughout human history, many missing ships that have just vanished, and many in the Bermuda Triangle, for example, were struck by these rogue waves. 
And like I say, I think they're much more frequent than they're letting on in this article. Right. So next one. And this is also from Live Science. So again, thanks for this one, Mark. And this would have been perfect at Valentine's Day, so I do apologize. I'm a month and a half late. Astronauts spot an ancient heart-shaped oasis in Egypt just in time for Valentine's Day. And this is from Brandon Spector, published February 15th. Thank the engineering kings of ancient Egypt for this geographical heartthrob. And it is heart-shaped, but it's very rough, let's say. It's not something that stands out and you go, oh, yeah, oh, that's really hard. It, it, it is shaped kind of like a heart, okay. Soaring 250 miles or 400 kilometers over the Earth, astronauts aboard the ISS, or International Space Station, looked down on our planet last May and saw a heart-shaped oasis blooming in the Egyptian desert. Today, February 14th, our friends in space are sharing the striking image as a special valentine for the whole planet, courtesy of NASA's Earth Observatory website. Known as the Fayum Oasis, this lush heart in the desert is actually a broad wetland basin that extends over 450 square miles, or 1,200 square kilometers, about one and a half times the area of the five boroughs of New York City. While it may be nowhere near as populous as the Big Apple today, the oasis has sustained human life for roughly 8,000 years, according to NASA. Yeah, that is a long time. And was the staging ground for some of the most ambitious feats of engineering in ancient history. Fed by a natural channel of nearby of the nearby Nile River known as Bar Yosef, the oasis was once a shimmering lake called Lake Morris. The lake's existence depended on seasonal floods from the Nile, according to the University College of London Geographic Department. While the Nile floodwaters were too low, the rulers of ancient Egypt sometimes took bold measures. Where there is evidence that a succession of pharaohs living some 4,000 years ago addressed one particular severe weather shortage head-on by enlarging the Bar Yosef to manually return weather to the region. Yeah, and you can see this lake in the photo. It is an interesting photo, definitely. This was one of the earliest massive national hydrological projects in the world, according to the UCL website. The 12th Dynasty kings responsible were Amenahat, 1 through the 3rd, and they acquired the title of Engineering Kings. Today, the ancient lake lives on as much smaller Quarun Lake, seen below the heart in the image, thanks to those engineering works of antiquity. The rest of Old Morris's sprawling lake bed remains a fertile oasis that supports many villages, towns, farms, and orchards, which you and the astronauts can see in the gray patchy regions that make up the oasis's heart in the image. And so we thank the ancient pharaohs for this geographical valentine. Let's hope their hearts are still where they should be, because... <laughs> As we know, uh, their hearts and organs were removed and put in Copic jars in their tombs. So there's a link to an article there. I'm sure we'll say something like that. Right, so if you want to see that photo, folks, like I say, go in the show notes. Click on the link that says, Astronauts spot an ancient heart-shaped oasis in Egypt just in time for the Valentine's Day. And it's pretty much right at the top of the photo. Okay, so here are some that I have dredged up myself off the internet. The first one is dedicated to our new chapter president in Western Australia, John. John, this is an Aussie one, so of course it's dedicated to you. And this is a video from Coast to Coast AM. It says, Nightmarish mystery creature remains found on Australian beach. And it's just from a couple of days ago, March the 29th. A man walking on a beach in Australia was left scratching his head when he stumbled upon the rather nightmarish remains of a mysterious creature that had washed ashore. The unsettling find was reportedly made by Alex Tan, 
as he was out for one of his regular morning strolls along the country's Maru Chidor Beach. The young man's normally routine daily excursion took a very weird turn when he encountered the somewhat bloated carcass of a four-legged creature with an exposed skull, a long tail, and an unnerving set of front paws that look eerily similar to a pair of human hands. Sharing a video of the hideous find, which you can see linked in here, Tan amused that this is like one of those things you see when people claim they found aliens. Zooming in on the repulsive remains which had attracted attention of flies, the young man understandably marvels how weird is that. He goes on to observe that the creature appears to be a hairless possum, but concedes that it is different to anything I've ever seen. As one might imagine, there have been no shortage of theories online, with some echoing Tan's suggestion, while others have suggested that the animal could be a young kangaroo. Longtime fans of strange and unusual mystery creatures have likened Tan's discovery to the infamous Montauk Monster, which washed ashore in New York back in 2018 and became something of a sensation before it was determined to be a dead raccoon. I didn't know that, by the way, that it ended up being a dead raccoon. So interesting. To that end, what do you think stumbling upon what what he stumbled upon in his morning walk? Right, so I'm going to click on the video really quickly. I'm also going to try and find out which state that is in Aussie. So he's giving a bit of a preface in the video. And then he shows, yeah, it's quite small. It's about the size of a large house cat, I would say. Yeah, it definitely is shaped like a possum. The maybe, yeah, it's it's quite small. So this is not like some gigantic 10-foot-tall uh, creature. So, folks, um, if you want to check out that video, again, just go and check out the link in the show notes. It's on his Instagram page. Uh, Rightio. So now let's find out where is this beach. So live, folks. We're doing this live right now. So let's just have a very quick look. Where is this? Which state? Okay. Beach in Australia. Well, that's not very... Queensland. Okay. So it looks like it's in fairly northern Queensland. Yeah. Um, up north. So it's a long way from you, John, but still interesting. And I've got a friend who's in Brisbane right now. So um, I don't think that creature's still there on the beach. I'd tell him to go and check it out. So interesting one nonetheless, John. And uh, yeah, sorry, it's not more compelling, but as you know, we do these reveals live. I don't, unless somebody sends me the article in, in advance, I tend to find out, along with you, the listeners, what uh, these things look like. So, on that note, on to another cryptid and our ongoing Nessie watch. First Nessie sighting of 2022 recorded. And this is from March the 29th, and this is uh, off of Coast to Coast AM as well. And there's a video, so. Because you can go, and I've actually done this, you can go and look at the live webcam of the uh, lochness.co.uk website. I'm just looking at the video. I need to clean my monitor, folks. Uh, my, <laughs> my monitor's got a few smudges on it. But, yeah, it's not standing out. I'll read the article because I'm sure it will detail it in, in a little bit better light. A diligent Loch Ness webcam viewer with a remarkable penchant for spotting anomalies that could be the site's legendary monster has been credited with ending a months-long drought of reports by recording the first official Nessie sighting of 2022. Ian O. Faudigan of Ireland was watching the popular live stream on March the 23rd 
when he noticed wake-like movements involving two objects moving parallel to each other, approximately 450 feet from shore. In a video capture of the virtual sightings, the peculiar oddities appeared on the water for a few seconds before disappearing, and then another odd object appears in the general direction where they were headed. Although the footage is admittedly rather hard to decipher, it was apparently strange enough to be excited by, sorry, to be accepted by the official Loch Ness Monster Sightings Register, which is deemed O'Fadigan's video to be the first report of 2022 to meet its rigorous standards. In some ways, the case could have been, sorry, could have come at a better time, as many Nessie aficionados had begun to notice that the famed creature had yet to be spotted this year. Concerns surrounding the missing monster grew to such a level that Gary Campbell, who has run the official registry for over two decades, was called upon by a Scottish media outlet earlier this month to offer his take on the matter, and he assured the public that the lack of sightings was not all that concerning. At the time, the seasoned monster hunter explained that the lack of tourists and daylight at Loch Ness, yep, makes sense, during winter months, make for a particularly poor conditions for Nessie sightings. He also noted that the organization had actually received a handful of webcam reports, but we've only, but we, sorry, but we've been able to explain them. Campbell's words of assurance to the public <clears throat> proved to be prophetic, as it was only a few weeks later that O'Fadigan submitted the video and Nessie was officially on the proverbial board for 2022. With warmer months and longer days set to begin soon, Campbell hopes that this year we'll see an increase over 2021's exceptional tally of 16 sightings, which is obviously more than one a month. Interesting. So let's just see. I'm just going to rewind this video again and see if I can see it. Um, yeah, folks. Um, okay, there it is. I can see it. Yeah, interesting. Um, it's definitely not a smoking gun, but it is interesting. And it's good to know that there are people who are keeping an eye on Loch Ness because it's obviously one of the most famous purported cryptids in the world. And uh, you can argue that it draws a lot of tourists and maybe that's why people do it. But I would say that Loch Ness predated any tourism by quite a long time, uh, meaning the Loch Ness Monster. Right, so here we are on to the next one. And this one is from Vice. So you, those of you who listen to the show a lot, you'll know that I've covered quite a bit about Vice in the past, and they do some really good stuff. Now, this one is titled, Scientists are preparing for our best shot yet at identifying alien life. Methane is a potential sign of life that the James Webb Telescope can readily detect on other worlds, reports a new study. And this is by Becky Ferreria. And this came out on the 29th. So again, just a couple days ago. So it says, scientists are preparing for our best shot yet to find alien life on exoplanets, which are worlds that orbit other stars. As the James Webb Space Telescope, or JWST, a space observatory with unparalleled sensitivity gears up to take its first observations, researchers are gaming out the potential identification of biosignatures, which are signs of life on the exoplanets in JWST's sites. Now a team led by Maggie Thompson, a graduate student in astronomy and astrophysics, astrophysics at UC Santa Barbara, has presented an updated guide to interpreting detections of methane gas on exoplanets, which can be produced by living and abiotic processes. Okay. Sorry, folks, just a few problems with the web page. <laughs> this is a super exciting time, said Thompson in an email. 
JWST is going to revolutionize our understanding of exoplanets and will allow us to begin characterizing the atmospheres of rocky, potentially habitable worlds. I'm very excited to see what JWST discovers and what sorts of interesting targets it identifies that we will want to continue observing with future telescopes. Thompson and her colleagues note that methane is the only biosignature that the James Webb Space Telescope could readily detect in terrestrial atmospheres, making it imperative to understand methane biosignatures to contextualize these upcoming observations, according to a study published Monday in Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. Scientists are already trying to find biosignatures in the atmospheres of exoplanets that could hint at the presence of life, such as oxygen, oxone, and carbine, uh, carbon dioxide. However, the molecular properties of methane line up with the JWST sweet observational spot at a near-infrared wavelength, making it particularly important compound in the search for extraterrestrial life. The way we will observe methane or any atmospheric gas in exoplanets' atmospheres with JWST is going to be through spectral observations in the infrared, Thompson explained. Methane's absorption figures features in the near-infrared, where JWST is most sensitive, are stronger than of molecular oxygen and ozone, making methane more easily detectable than oxygen. In addition, other studies have simulated JWST data, including a paper by co-author Joshua Christensen Toto in 2018, found that it will likely be possible to detect and constrain methane abundances, but detecting oxygen would be much more challenging, she added. To appreciate the complexities of a methane detection on an alien world, Thompson and her colleagues assessed the broader context that could help distinguish between bona fide biosignatures and emissions from natural geological processes, such as volcanic eruptions. Methane, in short, is short-lived in atmospheres compared to other compounds, such as carbon dioxide, so detecting it would be an indication that there is a huge supply of the gas constantly rising into the skies of another planet. One of the keys to determining whether that supply stems from living creatures or geological processes is to look at the overall composition of the atmosphere, the study suggests. For instance, volcanic eruptions and tectonic processes belch out methane, but these abiotic em uh, events also emit gases such as carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide. Since carbon monoxide is an easy gas for many life forms to consume here on Earth, the team suggests that a planet with carbon dioxide and methane in its atmosphere but relatively little carbon monoxide is more likely to host life. Makes sense? Although JWST alone will likely not be able to fully assess habitability, it may identify interesting targets, like a rocky exoplanet with abundant methane and carbon dioxide with little to no carbon monoxide, which would motivate observations with future telescopes to uncover the broader planetary context necessary to determine if the methane is being produced by life, Thompson said. Right, so let's see, next paragraph here. In addition to using past and present Earth as an analog for studying atmospheric methane, the team looked to Mars, which appears to produce whiffs of the gas, and Saturn's moon Titan, a world awash in volatile elements, including liquid and gas versions of methane. Atmospheric methane on Mars and Titan is likely to be abiotic, making these worlds useful analogs of lifeless exoplanets that nonetheless produce a powerful biosignature. These examples can help scientists avoid false positives when looking for aliens and other star systems. Mercury is another interesting analog because although its small size and proximity to the sun preclude it from having an atmosphere, its crust is enriched in graphite, 
a crystalline form of carbon. And it serves as an example of worlds where more reduced of more reducing interiors where you could imagine magnetic outgassing, i.e. volcanic activity, causing a methane-rich atmosphere, Thompson noted. We investigated this possibility in our study and found that it is unlikely for planets with very reduced interiors, like Mercury, to mag to magmatically so I don't know if that's a misspelling or to magmatically outgas significant methane because most of the carbon will eventually remain in the solid form as graphite, she continued. That being said, Mercury is still an interesting analog for rocky exoplanets that have very reduced interior compositions. And more work is needed to fully understand the atmospheres that could form antibiotically, or sorry, abiotically via outgassing of such reduced interiors. The new study presents a revamped framework for assessing methane biosignatures on exoplanets, but much more research is needed to tease out all the many ambiguous forms that the gas is bound to take in the skies of the other worlds. Interestingly, many revelations about distant worlds are linked to be solved by continuing to look at planets closer to home. There are a lot of avenues for future research based on this study, Thompson said. I'm particularly excited to further explore the possibility of exoplanets that are like Saturn's moon Titan that have large inventories of volatile species. If such planets exist at the outer edge of the habitable zone, so colder than Earth but still potentially habitable, I'd like to determine if such planets could have atmospheres rich in methane due to abiotic sources. I also think there is a lot of work to be done to understand the ability of chemical reactions between water and rock to generate abiotic methane under different planetary environments, which will require more laboratory experiments and theoretical modeling, she concluded. So, yeah, folks, look, it is something that will continue to happen. No matter what we may think, no matter what we personally may believe about life out there, or if life has visited us or has been here at one time or another, it's something that the scientific community will continue to explore. And, uh, you know, it's great to hear that they are giving it a actual uh, time of day instead of what it was many years ago where they basically said life outside of Earth is impossible because God only created us. So it is uh, interesting how our thoughts and the scientific model shifts over time. Rightio, so two more articles here, folks, and then that's it for this episode of the News of the Damned. Let's see here. Uh, the first one I found quite interesting. This one's from unexplainedmysteries.com as well. And this is from March 27th, so just a few days ago. And this one says, Ghost hunters photograph hooded figure in Sherwood Forest. So, hmm, hooded figure in Sherwood Forest, who would that be? I'm sure almost all of you will uh, remember the story of Robin Hood and his merry men. So, yeah, that uh, could be one of them, particularly one of the famous ones. But who knows? Rightio. Okay, so let's get into it, shall we? An alleged apparition has been caught on camera in the woods thought to have once been frequented by none other than Robin Hood. There are few forests in England as famous as Sherwood Forest the home of the legendary and mostly fictional Robin Hood and his band of merry men as they robbed from the rich to give to the poor. However, there are many others from all over who are real. Brennan on the Moor is an Irish example of someone who uh, robbed from the rich to give to the poor, Rob Roy, and many others. 
So steeped in history is the stretch of woodland that it has become a popular visitor attraction, as well as a target for paranormal investigators hoping to capture evidence of its long-deceased inhabitants. Most recently, paranormal investigator Dean Buckley and his spiritualist medium partner Veronica had been exploring the woods when they captured something unusual on camera. It was January the 29th, and after 11.30 in the evening, so 11.30 p.m., meaning that the place was pitch dark, well, as you would expect. The image they captured shows what they maintain to be the ghost of a hooded figure, one that Veronica believes may have been one of Robin Hood's merry men. I'm interested in Robin Hood, always have been, said Dean. I caught it on my camera, and I was so excited. When we were in the forest, we felt we were being watched from all angles. We felt it every time as we went deeper. Now, folks, where have we heard that before? Ah, yes, Huyabachu Forest in Romania, and many other quote-unquote haunted forests. We heard whistles and footsteps behind us and saw shadows. We would call out to them. I felt excited. I always do. It doesn't bother me. Sadly, though, the photograph isn't exactly clear, appearing as a vague shape in the gloom. Could it be one of Robin Hood's men? Well, it's possible. We're unlikely to ever know for sure. And that comes from the Nottingham Post. So they've got a uh, accreditation here at the bottom. And I will admit, the photo that I'm seeing looks like a blur on... Yeah, it, it it's kind of like a lighter background against a black photo, and you can see a tree in the corner. But again... um. I don't know. I've not done spirit photography, but I often hear that what manifests is not necessarily what you expect. So I keep an open mind. I've got no doubt that we endure, we survive in some way, shape, or form after we pass through this mortal coil. And do we come back in a spirit form? Do we stay here? Is it a psychic impression on the world in general? Who knows? But um, I'm always fascinated when I hear these stories. And especially when they show me a photo like this and not one of those things with the program with the little stick figure in it. Okay, so last but not least. And this is specifically for my friends Russ and Jeff in Wisconsin. And anyone else who may be interested in Wisconsin, bars, beer, uh, deer, yeah. So this is an interesting one. This one comes from the UPI, which is UPI.com. Herd of Deer Overruns Wisconsin Pub. One Smashes Through Window by Ben Hooper. A herd of deer overran the outdoor patio seating area at Dublin's Irish Pub in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Well, at least they got taste and they went to an Irish pub. And one of the animals vaulted through a plate glass window. March 28th, a Wisconsin bar shared video of the moment a herd of deer overran the establishment's patio area, and one of the animals crashed through the pub into the pub through a window. Dublin's Irish pub in Oshkosh posted photos to Facebook, showing the mess of broken glass left behind by an unexpected guest that decided to use our window as the entrance. Well, it wasn't me this time. The bar later posted an update after a review of security camera footage showed the deer hadn't acted alone. The video shows an entire herd of deer vaulting over a short wall and overrunning the pub's patio, seating area, when one of the animals leaps right through the window, shattering it. The pub said the deer dispersed within minutes of arriving at the business. Well, folks, hey, when I want a Guinness, I want a Guinness, and I don't blame the deer for taking the window and not going through the front door. 
So, my friends, I do hope that you found interest in those stories. Um, I'm always up for News of the Damned, and I hope that you do enjoy it. I'll uh, be going back in the lab shortly after I get done with this and getting it released for you and working on editing that second half of my interview with Susie Kerr-Wright. I do hope that you have a great week, my friends. Take care, stay safe, and like I say, I've said it before and I mean it. If you ever need someone to talk to and you don't have anyone else, you got JT. Send me an email, get a hold of me. I'll always be here to talk to anyone who just needs someone to talk to. Take care, my friends. Stay safe, and I'll talk to you soon. Are you itching for a good story? Laughter among friends, maybe even a mystery or two? Well, you're in luck. Fire Breathing Kittens is a standalone Dungeons & Dragons podcast. Each episode is a separate three-hour-long story, like a movie for your ears, so you can listen to these adventures in any order you like. So, join us on a real play D&D quest as we solve mysteries, attempt comedic banter, and enjoy friendship. Fire Breathing Kittens podcast. Fantasy action. Mystery. Friendship.